Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our final panelist this morning is Professor Jennifer Frey. She earned her PhD in philosophy from the University of Pittsburgh and has been, until very recently, a a professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. Uh, Next month, she and her family will be moving to Oklahoma, where she has been named the inaugural dean of the new Honors College at the University of Tulsa. Her research interests have been primarily on Virtue and Philosophy and Happiness and Medieval Studies. Please welcome Professor Jennifer Frey. Okay, Um, this feels a little bit like academic speed dating. Um, So, and I'm not gonna sing. Um, (laughs) I feel a weird pressure to sing that I'm not gonna give into. Um, So, Father Dominic Legg assigned me the topic of acts of religion and the priesthood. Um, I'm going to talk a lot about acts of religion (laughs) um, and a little bit about the priesthood, uh, mostly because I'm a humble philosopher, now I'm an administrator, um, but I want to give sort of the the broader context for thinking about religion uh, and acts of religion in relation to virtue. So um, my starting point is to reimagine what is meant by religion. Um, So if you bring up religion in pretty much any context, uh, you're not going to be picking out the topic that I want to focus on. So I don't want to discuss the sociological category of organized religion. Right, this picks out a body of doctrine and practice that is established and enforced by some kind of hierarchical or bureaucratic form of institutional management or control. Not talking about that. Second, I don't want to talk about religion in the sense that picks out some comprehensive philosophical or theological doctrine that attempts to answer questions like, how should I live? What should I believe? What is the meaning and purpose of my life? And third, I don't want to talk about religion as an object of speculative inquiry. This is how you might encounter the concept of religion in departments of religious studies or psychology or anthropology in our contemporary universities. I don't want to talk about these senses of religion because in all these senses, religion is a thing or an object. And I think this puts us in completely the wrong frame of mind. Instead, I want to focus on religion as St. Thomas understands it, religion as a virtue that is defined by certain acts that render what is due to the source of all being, in other words, to God. But God grasped under the description the first principle of creation. In this sense, religion is not a thing but it's an essential part of living well for a human person. Religion in this sense is sometimes called true religion. It was classically understood as a moral virtue whose intelligibility came from shared practices of worship and devotion. 
And then ultimately, I want to reflect on the role that the priesthood plays in helping to cultivate and sustain what Aquinas considers a natural virtue. Now, in order to understand St. Thomas on religion, we have to rehearse his account of virtue and his moral theology generally. So the context of moral theology for Aquinas, as I'm sure many of you know, is happiness. Happiness is kind of the constitutive goal of practical reasoning and action. So it's constitutive in that it both defines uh, human action and provides its measure. So when we reason and act well, right, then we are reasoning and acting in ways that constitute human happiness. And we sin when we miss this constitutive mark. Now, in order to reason and act well, Aquinas says that we need habits. In fact, um, it's not at all misleading to say that for St. Thomas, we're just creatures of habit. Um, and really the only question is whether or not our habits are going to be good or bad. And virtues, of course, are good habits. They're stable dispositions that perfect our capacities for rational thought, action, feeling, and desire. And they dispose them such that they reliably act in accordance with principles of right practical reason so that we can be happy and live well. Habits perfect powers or capacities disposing them to act in characteristic ways or according to characteristic patterns that you can easily recognize. Now, virtue requires more than just doing the right thing or performing the right action. Um, you have to do it as the virtuous person would do it. So what is that way? Well, the virtuous person has to know, right, that what he does is good, that it's just or honest or courageous, and he also has to pursue this good for its own sake, rather than for the sake of some external or instrumental goal like honor, fame, or power. And, and this is actually like really critical, they have to pursue the good with ease and pleasure. This last requirement I think is very important because it's too often ignored, but it has to do with the fact that virtue becomes like second nature to us in the sense that we find it pleasing and beneficial. And of course, the exact same thing is true of vice, which is why Aquinas likens vice to a kind of addiction. This underscores the deep connection between virtue and happiness. If it was always a struggle for you to do the right thing, you would not be happy, right? In the sense of deeply fulfilled and flourishing, you would be kind of miserable and disappointed. In order for it not to be a struggle, though, for you to do the right thing, reason and desire have to come into some kind of alignment or harmony, right? We can't be always internally divided against ourselves the way that the young Augustine is in the Confessions. But the conclusion to draw from some kind of misalignment in a soul is not that morality and happiness should come apart, which is kind of like, the main idea of modern moral philosophy, but rather that when they do come apart, the problem is with us and needs to find correction there. Now, Aristotle, who's like one of the touchstones for St. Thomas, distinguishes between intellectual and moral virtues. The former he takes to, protect, to perfect our capacities for reasoning, judgment, and knowledge, and the latter to perfect our emotions, 
our lower appetites, and most importantly, our capacity to desire what we know is good, which is the rational appetite or the will. Aquinas adds to this Aristotelian framework a distinction between acquired and effused virtues. Acquired virtues are those that we can attain through our own natural abilities, working cooperatively with others, and participating in shared practices that are ordered to our natural good, whereas infused virtues depend upon God's grace and our cooperation with it. And then corresponding to this distinction is some difference between degrees of happiness, right? So there's the kind of imperfect and fragile happiness of this life, and then there's the perfect beatitude of the life to come. The former, Aquinas thinks, is always, even at its best, only a foretaste of the latter, which is the real goal. Now, Aquinas, unlike Aristotle, but like Cicero, has an account of the four cardinal virtues, right? The four cardinal virtues would be practical wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And for St. Thomas, each cardinal virtue perfects a human power over which we can exercise rational control, thereby perfecting some sphere of human life generally. Aquinas notes that the good of the human person is sought primarily through right practical reason, because it's through our rational capacities that we are made in the image and likeness of God, and thus through reason that we live in a distinctively human way. This plays out through the cardinal virtues in the following way. Prudence secures the good of practical reason through right practical judgment. Justice affects or executes this good and our actions, our external actions, our transactions with other people. Fortitude protects the good of reason by allowing us to hold firm and practical judgments in the face of difficult circumstances. And finally, temperance preserves it against bodily desires that cloud our practical judgment or render such judgment ineffective in action. For Aquinas, and this is a quote, the entire structure of good works is built upon these four virtues. And it does that insofar as each principal power of the human soul is perfected by one of these virtues, thereby making it possible to attain excellence in each distinctive sphere of the moral life. And you can kind of think about the unity of the virtues thesis, which Aquinas is picking up from Aristotle in terms of the unity of the human soul. For Aquinas, the most important moral virtue is justice, because justice rectifies the will, and the will is the essentially rational appetite, the main principle of voluntary or free or properly human action. The will is essentially rational because unlike lower appetites, the will gets its objects from acts of practical judgment. The will desires what the judgments of reason discern here and now is in fact living well. And the proper matter of justice is our transactions with other people, rendering to each one what is owed to him. Because a man is just insofar as he respects the rights or the use of others. So justice is essentially interpersonal or related towards other people. It's, and this is just um, Aquinas' definition, it's a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due by a constant and perpetual will. 
And justice is a moral virtue because it perfects an appetite. For we are not said to be just through knowing something aright. Rather, we are just through our actions, through doing what is right. And the proximate explanation of action is an act of the will or appetite. Aquinas recognizes that it is possible for one to know what one owes to another, a debt, say, and yet not desire to act in accordance with this knowledge, and in fact, knowingly choose an action that contravenes it. Aquinas calls such actions malicious, or cases of clear-eyed wrongdoing, rather than wrongdoing explained by ignorance or disordered passions. A man can refuse to pay a debt because he prefers to use his money to purchase luxury goods for himself. And he can do this in full knowledge that he is obliged to pay the debt owed. Such a person is greedy or avaricious. He wants material goods more than he wants to participate in and preserve a just order. Um, but this kind of malice, right, is a moral rather than an intellectual failure. And that's kind of the point. But malice is not the only way that one can fail to have a just will. You can commit adultery, for example, which is an injustice, but not for lack of knowledge, but simply from inordinate sexual desire. Or you might convict an innocent man, knowing full well that this is wrong, because you fear an unruly mob. Fortitude and temperance, then, are virtues that preserve reason through rectification of lower appetites, thereby allowing a person to remain just. So this super brief sketch of the cardinal virtues shows something that I think is really important, which is that the will, which is again this capacity to act voluntarily or freely, cannot be well disposed to its acts in absence of well-disposed passions and a well-disposed intellect. So here again, you have the unity of the virtues and the unity of the human soul. And this is really what it means for Aquinas for ethics to be grounded in human nature, in a proper philosophical anthropology, or psychology, as an Aristotelian might put it. So Aquinas's account of the cardinal virtues includes, and this is true for all of them, what he calls their integral and potential parts. The integral parts are the other dispositions or capacities necessary for the virtue to take root and be sustained in us, but the potential parts are those virtues that share in or participate in, in some way, with one of the cardinal virtues. And according to this general schema, the virtue of religion is a potential part of justice. This means that religion has something in common with justice, but in some respect falls short of the perfection of justice. And the sense in which it falls short is that there is no chance of equality between God and man. Since justice is essentially interpersonal, right, the object of justice is only determined between persons, so is religion. Although religion is annexed to justice, this does not mean that Aquinas is saying it has a lesser status. Indeed, Aquinas is clear that religion is the most excellent of all moral virtues. It functions in a way similar to Aristotelian justice. It plays a unifying and architectonic role in the moral life. Religion brings clarity to the question, what are you living for? 
Now, the virtue of religion consists of interior acts of devotion and prayer and exterior acts of adoration, sacrifice, oblation, tithes, and vows. Aquinas takes this view of religion from the pagans. In fact, in his discussion of religion in the Summa, he cites Cicero about 10 times, including in his definition, which is that religion consists in offering service and ceremonial rites to a superior nature that men call divine. Religion's status as a moral virtue for St. Thomas does not depend on Christian revelation, and this is very interesting. Aquinas is clear, and this is a quote, it belongs to the dictates of natural reason that man should do something through reverence for God. Man is a homo religiosus by nature. He will need to show reverence to God, or something that stands in for God, as principle of being and governor of all things. However, natural reason does not tell us what, in particular, we need to do to render to God what is owed to him. Natural law does not give us proper Catholic worship. Although, interestingly, it does, according to Aquinas, give us the external act of making a sacrifice. Um, he thinks that this is discernible through the natural use of reason. But Aquinas thinks it's clear that we need divine law and revelation in order to know how to worship. For Aquinas on the level of nature, a man is said to be religious because he often ponders over and reads again the things which pertain to the worship of God, right? And so when he talks about religio in a general sense, he says there are three senses of it. One is like to read again, to ponder in our hearts. Another is to choose again what we would otherwise neglect, this kind of constant conversion or turning back towards God. And finally, it's simply to bind ourselves to God in our actions. Aquinas further notes that religion has two kinds of acts. There are the sort of proper and immediate acts of religion, which the virtue itself elicits, and by which a man is directed to God, sacrifice, adoration, oblation, prayer, and the like. And then religion has commanded acts, which are acts connected to virtues that religion itself commands. Aquinas thinks that through the exercise of the virtue of religion, we command all other virtues to the honor and reverence of God. So, for example, to visit the orphan or the sick in their tribulations is, properly speaking, an act of the virtue of mercy. But such acts of mercy are commanded by religion insofar as religion directs such acts to the honor and glory of God. In this latter sense, the whole moral life can and should be directed to the glory of God as properly in recognition of it as what is owed to him, right? And there is contained in that um, an explicit recognition that the moral life itself is ultimately grounded in God as creator, giver of our nature, which is the ground of moral acts and virtue. Now, among the proper acts of religion, there are also interior and exterior acts. Exterior acts are ordered to interior acts as kind of sensible to intelligible. Now, the interior acts, which are the ones I'm going to focus on just for issues of time, are prayer and devotion. 
Devotion is about the cultivation of desire. To be devout is to have the will that stands ready to worship or service God, to do so with ease and pleasure and from a firm disposition. How do we become more devout? Aquinas argues that it is principally through contemplation. In particular, it is through the contemplation of God's goodness as worthy of our reverence and attention, and then also of our own sins, right? Uh, When we contemplate our sins, we discern in a deep way our need for God's grace, which directs us back to acts of religion and worship. Uh, And of course, when we contemplate his goodness, we draw nearer to him in our hearts, and we are more likely to order our lives to reverence him. Prayer, St. Thomas says, is about the cultivation of the mind. It's an act of the practical intellect, but it is also ordered to desire. He says that prayer is fundamentally a petition, beseeching a higher power or superior. This is a quote. Man shows reverence to God by means of prayer, insofar as he subjects himself to him, and by praying confesses that he needs him as the author of his goods. Aquinas also argues that prayer functions to interpret our desires to ourselves, right? Which helps us to grow in the moral and spiritual life, but also one supposes to give us a modicum of self-knowledge. We pray, Aquinas argues, not to change God's will, which is impossible, but to change ourselves so that we are more properly disposed to receive what God sees fit to give us. On this point, I can share a little note that my son Dominic wrote before he received his first communion a few weeks ago, which I found when I was cleaning his room. The note said, Dear God, please help me overcome my bad habits, which make me sin. Love, Dominic. (laughs) And it was the most beautiful Augustinian prayer of all time. I was very proud of my son. Uh, Aquinas counsels that we ought to pray for what we ought to desire, and also that the Lord's Prayer in particular teaches us what to desire. But of course, the Lord's Prayer is revealed to us. It is not something discerned through the light of reason. So in his discussion of the interior acts of religion, which are the most fundamental, we see very clearly the necessity of grace and revelation, of the need for acts of religion to be specifically Christian. Although the virtue of religion is part of human nature's simpliciter, Aquinas is ultimately interested in the Christian virtue of religion and its specifically graced character. We will not understand how to pray at the level of nature, nor will we become more devout in the relevant sense. As Father Benino makes clear um, in his article on religion and the priesthood, the virtue of religion ensures mediation between two things. On the one hand, the structural moral demands flowing from our human nature, and two, the specific form of our theological life as Christians. So by way of conclusion, I want to turn to the role the priest plays in the cultivation of religion in the sense I have outlined as a moral virtue of the will, which is a potential part of justice, a disposition to give God what is owed to him, that is grounded in human nature and part of the natural law, but that necessarily depends on the graced virtues of faith, hope, and love, 
and the sacramental life. If virtues are necessary to secure our happiness, and the virtue of religion is necessary in order that the whole moral life be appropriately related to God, then the priest surely plays a special role in a flourishing human life, and it is worth dwelling on that role just a bit. All too briefly, let us recall that virtue, like all habits, depends on some kind of exemplar or model. Those who can be imitated by the rest of us who are learning to grow in virtue and need models or guides. Virtue requires initiation into practices. We are not born into a virtuous life, though it is natural to us to develop the virtues. The exemplar is a teacher who models and instructs through his actions, right? Not through his lectures or his books, but through his actions. An exemplar is, therefore, someone who needs to be carefully observed. The moral life is the realm of the particular and the concrete. It depends on a kind of intellectual perception of what virtue demands in the ever-changing circumstances of human life. We have the saints, of course, as exemplars of virtue, simpliciter as perfect imitators of Christ. But I would think that even a very imperfectly moral priest serves as an exemplar of the virtue of religion by showing us how the acts of religion should be performed and undertaken as Catholics. We cannot neglect that it is the priest first and foremost who is teaching us how to worship properly. And as we have seen, we need a specific mode of worship in order to have a Christian religion. Here the priest has a special duty and responsibility to the faithful. The priest helps us to see how the natural virtue of religion gets taken up into the life of grace, of faith, hope, and love. Here Benino on the Eucharistic sacrifice as a religious act is apropos. And this is a quote. The Eucharistic sacrifice is first an external public act of worship accomplished by priests who are consecrated in order to carry out that sacred action. This action is finalized by the interior worship of the participants, the priests themselves, and the members of the worshiping community. And finally, this religious worship, inseparably interior and exterior, is an expression of the theological life of faith and love by which each participant is configured by grace to the mystery of the charity of Christ, offering himself for God's glory and our salvation. So the priesthood of Jesus Christ, then, gives theological and supernatural form to the natural institution of the priesthood that responds to human nature, human needs, and is essential to human happiness. Thanks for your attention. All right. Do we have any questions for Professor Frey? Father Norbert. Thank you, Dr. Frey. My name is Father Norbert Kelleher. I'm a chaplain at Youngstown State University in Ohio. And I spent a lot of time in working with college students wondering about what sort of idea of God they have. And St. Thomas says the natural law can be partially, but not completely, blotted out. Mm -hmm. So do you have any ideas on possible touch points for students who have grown up in a world where they think very little about what they owe to God, 
and insofar as they do think of God, it's only in what he owes to them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. So there are lots of ways that you might go wrong about God, right? <laughs> um, and it kind of depends on exactly the ways that the young people, right, that you're interacting with are going wrong. I mean, in my own case, I mean, I was basically raised to be a secular atheist. Um, so, so like that was me when I was 18. Um, except that my problem was not that I thought God owed me a bunch of stuff because I didn't believe in God. Uh, but my problem is that I didn't actually understand the thing that I rejected, right? So I had um, a kind of inarticulate vision of God that was pretty close to what you might find with the new atheists now, right? Um, so... I mean, if, if that's the kind of population that you're dealing with, I think you have to um, do some theology with them, which I think is always worth doing. But if it's the more kind of moral therapeutic deism, like God's my homeboy or whatever, and, um, it doesn't actually demand anything of me. Um, I think that that idea of God is rooted in a misconception of love to begin with and what it means to be rightly ordered to another person, right? So it's this idea that like um, love doesn't demand anything. It doesn't demand sacrifices. It doesn't demand that I suffer. It doesn't demand that I give anything of myself, right? Um, it's just somebody loves me, they're going to make me feel good. Something like this, right? What does it mean to be a good friend? It's to make your friend feel good. Um, that's actually like an incredibly disastrous view of friendship. It's an incredibly false and disastrous view of love. But I mean, people are like spoon-fed this stuff and you really have to kind of jolt them out of it. Um, there's no like one way to do that. Um, philosophy, religion, literature, art. But I just think you got to shake them up out of this I don't know, just kind of dogmatic slumber that they themselves don't even realize is dogmatic. We have another question, Father Ambrose. Thank you again for your talk. Um, you know, we often hear today people say that I'm spiritual but not religious. Yeah. Now, quite often when they, talk, they say they're not religious, they mean one of the three things you said you weren't talking about at the beginning. Yeah. But it does seem, though, that they also mean to reject certain features of the virtue of religion um, that are necessary for the spiritual life. So, mm -hmm. And it makes it harder for these individuals to enter into the ecclesial practices of faith and worship and things like that. So one of the things that might be difficult for individuals like this is how can I see what a priest is doing offering worship as what I'm doing as offering worship? So like taking my personal spiritual experience Mm -hmm. and entering into a religious act with a community and making that part of my sacrifice. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So how would you, how would you, how could, do you think we could respond to people who say this sort of thing to us? So where, where the thing they say is that they feel disconnected from what's happening on the altar, like it doesn't involve them? Or That's right. Well, where they focus on their own spirituality as opposed to the communal act of worship, and then they're not able to associate with uh, what's going on in the altar with their own right. personal life. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this is just, 
anecdotal and vibes and impressions, obviously, this is not born out of serious sociological inquiry, but my, my impression is that so many students, many of whom may have gone to Catholic school their whole lives, by the way, um, they really don't understand what the mass is. They really don't understand that it's a sacrifice, for example. And if you say that to them, they're like, what are you talking about? They're like, it's dinner. Um, and it's like, well, I understand why you think that, but if you pay closer attention, you'll see that it's definitely a sacrifice. And they don't, I just think there is this huge hole where catechesis might have been. Um, and so I really think that many young people need to understand what the mass is, understand it in terms of not just something that's happening, that you're observing, but that's something that you necessarily participate in, right? I mean, this is something like I have a bunch of kids ranging from 17 to five and you know, getting them to participate in the mass, to really, really participate and not be passive is, I think, the fundamental struggle, right? Because it's hard for me to participate because, like, my five-year-old's, like, lifting up her dress and yelling out something, and it's, right, like, I'm just constantly in disaster mode. But um, it's that sense of participation, right? And, and what... What does that mean precisely as, right, acts of religion that you yourself are performing? Um, and, I mean, I, I think most Catholics that I meet don't actually have the concept of acts of religion, right, that exemplify a virtue necessary for their life. And so I think, and, and, and thinking of it in terms of, cultivating habits, right, that we need. Um, I mean, people go to mass habitually, right? But for too many people, they don't really understand, and young people in particular, they don't necessarily understand the connection between this thing that we do, that we've always done, and my actual flourishing as a human person, and like how to conceive of that. But I think that if you actually give them a conceptual context for understanding it, it opens up, it opens up all kinds of ways to grow in the spiritual life. I mean, it did for me, certainly. Um, and I see it with people like in our, I mean, I'm very involved in Catholic ministry on, on, on my campus in South Carolina, and I see it all the time. Um, they're, just, they're just largely uncatechized. Thank you so much, Professor Frey. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.